1: Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 1.
0: Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, we just praise you for who you are. We thank you for bringing each of us to this point in time. And we do pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit and through your word, you just reveal yourself to us. We pray that your purpose would be accomplished in each of our lives as we come before you pleading the blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Amen. Okay, we're in the Epistle of the Hebrews. But before I go on, I have a challenge for you, a question I'd like to ask. Sort of a quiz question. What Bible study? was given 12 different times by seven different people and always yielded incredible fruit and is rarely given today. What Bible study was given by seven different people in 12 different occasions in just one book of the Bible and is always recorded as bringing results? And we don't ever bother doing it today, hardly ever. What's the answer? Presenting Jesus Christ entirely from the Old Testament. How many of you could go to a Jewish friend and using the Tanakh, the Old Testament, present them Jesus Christ? Interestingly enough, there's many ways to do that, by the way. It takes a little preparation, a little outline, whatever. But that's what the epistle to Hebrews is all about. You're going to be stunned to discover the tour de force on Christology that is put together here by the writer, drawing 100% from the Old Testament. Has seven different quotes, just the first chapter. And that's just getting warmed up. So, Epistle of the Hebrews, a tour de force in Christology, and also about another topic that we're never taught about: our inheritance as believers. A lot of confusion on this topic. Your salvation can't be lost because Jesus paid 100% of it. We we nailed that down in our study of Romans. Paul wrote the book on eternal security, and yet Paul could be just apprehensive about his life. He was fearful. He's almost a Paranoid that he might be a castaway. Lose his salvation? No, no, no. Afraid of losing his inheritance. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, inheritance can be lost. And we have a risk of forfeiting ours. This study is going to challenge our soteriology. That's the fancy theological word for salvation. Many people are confused about their salvation. And that's what leads to all the confusion about the book of hebrews among other passages. We're also, it's also going to challenge our eschatology. Many people like to study end time prophecy and yet probably could not pass a preliminary test on the kingdom, the millennium. Many people study Armageddon and Ezekiel 38 and whatever and have no idea while, what's going on during the tribulation on what's going on up there What's the first thing that happens after the Harpatsa the rapture? Judgment seat of Christ. Oh Well, that's where we have the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. Are they the same thing? or Are they different? <sighs> I don't know These are neglected topics And uh, so it's going to challenge our soteriology and eschatology. And I want to say right up front, uh, we we embrace here two things. A very high view of inspiration. Our hermeneutics requires taking God seriously and respecting the precision of his statements. The need for precision is a That's why a paraphrase, throw it out the window. It's fine for maybe casual reading. No, if you're going to study, study as close as you can to the original. That means a good translation with footnotes. Or better yet, a computer software that will take you to Hebrew and Greek. Whether you know Hebrew or Greek, you don't need to. I mean, it takes care of that. That's one of the two things. High inspiration. The second thing is what we call a heuristic method. Our goal is not to convince you of the doctrines we happen to hold. Our goal is to get you equipped and tooled to find out for yourself. There is a landmark article in the recent Christianity Today about Willow Creek. Most of you that follow the field of ecclesiology know that there's a couple of churches that have really influenced the modern church in America. Saddleback with Rick Warren and all of that. There's one that's even bigger, and that's Willow Creek, Bill Hybels. They're the ones that have promoted the seeker-friendly move. Spending millions of dollars on displays and play all kinds of things. It's, it's, a, it's a real... Uh, everybody that's serious about pastoring a big church goes to Willow Creek to see how they do it. They've just published the results of a huge, expensive, detailed analysis of results. They spent a lot of money, and it's to their credit that they have published they astonishing conclusions. The, the title of the article is, We Made a Mistake. They admit that all that money was misspent, in effect, because it didn't produce any real results. And they've come to the conclusion that what they should have been doing, instead of all of that, for some years now, is raising self-feeding Christians and teaching the Word of God in a way that would cause them to feed themselves and emphasize basic spiritual disciplines, prayer and such. Back to basics. That's an astonishing article because it's not written by a critic, it's written by they themselves having spent a lot of money to come to those conclusions. It's also, I think, one that a lot of churches are going to be taken to heart and reevaluating what they're doing. And we, of course, are then challenged, too, not to, to continue doing exactly what we've been doing, but also to find ways to be more effective at partnering with churches. We're not anti-church. We're just focused on the basics. Learning the Bible. Understanding the times. And then putting it to practice, whatever God has called you to do. So anyway, that's, that's where we are with the book of Hebrews. And by the way, the other thing that surprised me to realize and it's influencing this rendering of Hebrews. I published a commentary on Hebrews in the past that really didn't hit the main mark because I didn't fully appreciate the prophecies on the millennium in this book. There's more prophecy about the millennium of Jesus Christ than any other period of time in the Bible. The connection that I missed during my 60 years of studying the Bible, I didn't appreciate the fact that the millennium is the fulfillment of the Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant is an unconditional covenant, and it's the key to understanding the whole program of God. And so, we're going to get into all of that in this thing. Hebrews, the epistle of Hebrews is called the riddle of the New Testament. The authorship is regarded by most commentators as anonymous because it wasn't signed. Was it written by Paul, or Apollos, or Barnabas? Those are common conjectures. The author had a vast knowledge of the Old Testament. He was clearly a Hellenistic Jew writing to Jewish believers, important point, who were under much persecution. That's clear from the context. And by the way, something else about the author that's missed by many of the readers, by many of the commentators. The readers knew who he was. There's indication in the structure of the sentence. They knew who he was. He didn't sign it for some very good reasons. And uh, now some of the issues that come up, of course, is the nature of five warnings that are in the book and to whom it's written. What are those five warnings? That's what confuse, several of them really confuse people. We're going to hit those as we go. They're not incidental. Some commentators notice them, but they sort of think they're a change of change of topic. No, they're very consistent with the central theme of the book. We need to understand to whom the book was written. And we'll be hammering this all the way through. Because there are people that don't understand. This book was written to people who were saved. This was written to believers. But it's going to focus on the dangers of not persevering in your faith. Okay? And one of the things we try to nail down right up early... You can't go at this exercise if you have any doubts about eternal security. And in your notes, if you haven't done it before, put John 10, verse 28 and 29. Jesus says, All the Father give me will come to me, and whosoever cometh to me, I will no wise cast out. No one can take him out of my hand. No one can take him out of my Father's hand. My Father is greater than all. No one can take him out of my hand. There are two hands involved. In John 17, Jesus commits the faithfulness of his followers to the Father. That's why Paul can say, "I know in whom I believe, and that He is able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day." And I, I usually like to work in the Walter Martin. What I attribute that I, a a remark I attribute to Walter Martin. If you can lose your salvation, I have a new name for God. Butterfingers. Because Jesus did it all, and there's plenty of scripture that emphasizes that it's 100% his completed work. To tell us, it is finished, it is complete. Well, what's the issue then? Well, we'll get into all of that as we get into repeat. We, we, we. Paul. There are many style reasons. The more you study style, the more it convinces you it's Paul. I'm amused by some of these people, well, it's, style's not Paul's. Go back and read last, I won't go through all of this this time, we did that in the last session. Peter, by the way, in his letter Virtually calls that makes this a fact, and uh, Peter says in his letter account that long suffering of our Lord is salvation. Even as the beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, unto whom the readers of Peter's letter. Who are the readers of Peter's letter? The Hebrews. Both his letters are written to his Hebrew followers. That was Hebrews, First uh, Peter one and, uh, and one one, and Second Peter three one. Uh, as, all, as in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some, of, some things are hard to be understood. That's Peter commenting on Paul's writing. He's kind of hard to understand at times, he says. He probably means that in general, or he might be referring to Hebrews 6. We'll get to that later. Which they that are unlearned and unstable rest... So if you're resting with that, you're having trouble with it, that's apparently, according to Peter, you're unlearned or unstable. But in any case, as they do also the other scriptures. Wait a minute. What a surprising statement that comes from none other than Peter himself. He calls Paul's writing scriptures. You need to understand that. These letters that were circulating in the early church were circulated as and regarded as scripture. They had the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and these various letters that they regarded as Scripture. Peter here records it. Now, if the he- book of Hebrews is not Paul's letter, then we got a bigger problem because then the letter Paul wrote to the Hebrews is lost. And there are theologians that say that's, Im- that's impossible because God protected his canon. So I won't go down that stream. But all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. No, just the Gospels. No, just the Torah. No, 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 no. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That term is a translation of a Greek term, which means God breathed. God breathed. Let's take that straight. Let's take that seriously. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction. What does all that mean? For doctrine, what's right? For reproof, what's not right? For correction, how to get it right. And for instruction, how to stay right. I hope that helps these highfalutin words a little bit. Okay. Peter goes on though in his passage there. He says something else. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness. Is that clouding our eternal security? No. It means you can fall. doesn't mean you lose your salvation, but you can fall. What What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? Fall from what? To where? To hell? No. That's what Christ has protected you from. We're going to answer that as we unfold this fascinating epistle. Paul also includes in this epistle a secret mark. Did you know that? Not really a secret, but it, it's a secret because a lot of scholars don't know it. And that makes it a secret, I guess. When understand that there were many forgeries floating around, the Thessalonian letters being an example Several. Once you understand there were forgeries that they were dealing with, you know, some passages will make more sense. At the end of the Thessalonian letter, the second Thessalonian letter was written in a response to an apparent forgery that was being circulated. Paul's having a, he's upset about that, and so he signs it with a large hand. It was written by a secretary, but he signs it himself with a large hand, and he puts in a personal token, something that they would recognize is his little fingerprint. The end of the Thessalonians there says, The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is a token of every epistle, so I write. Noticing he's signing his own hand and so forth. But he'd also include something else. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You That sounds so familiar to you that you probably don't recognize that nobody else used it. Paul alone does this. That was his signature token. You can find it all in every one of his letters. He uses that as his little fingerprint. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. How does the book of Hebrews end? Grace be with you all. Amen. Well, some of you are saying, well, Chuck, you're making a big thing out of nothing. Well, maybe. What's so impressive about this? Because the word grace does not even appear in any other epistle, with one exception. There's one place where... Peter uses it, but not in a salutation. So that tells me that, that I, I regard that as significant. And we can go through in the Roman, in, in love of Christ in Romans 8. Paul lists 7 and then 10 things more. In Hebrews, there are 7 things and 10 more. In Galatians, we list of 17 things. These are stylistic issues. They don't prove anything, but they do suggest that Romans, Hebrews, and Galatians are written by the same guy. I've got a stronger point to make in a minute here. There is a the catchword in the Reformation was the just shall live by faith, a quote from Habakkuk to four. And Romans answers the question, who are the just? Galatians answers, who shall how shall they live? And Hebrews answers by faith. All three epistles quote Habakkuk to 4 and are a trilogy on that little phrase. I'll show you what I mean by that. The just shall live by faith. Who are the just? Romans. Answers that and quotes it in Romans 1.17. They shall live how? That's what Galatians explains. Not by the law, but by grace. And uh, how shall they live? Hebrews, by faith. Romans, uh, Hebrews 10.39, a verse or two before the famous chapter 11, the hall of faith. So the point is, what this implies to me is that it implies that some single author wrote all three. And we know who wrote the other two. That was Paul. And the reader to Hebrews knew who the author was. We'll, tell, we'll sense that as we go through it. So 2-4 is the cornerstone. It became the battle cry of the Reformation. Well, what's the author's method? I'll sometimes be you know, academic and call it the writer or the author. But I want to write up front be admit to you, I'm convinced. Doesn't mean I'm right, but I'm convinced it was Paul. So you'll find me slip. and say Paul said this and Paul said that. So uh, bear, me, bear with me on that. He's going, his method is to at- attack, so to speak, the three main pillars of Judaism. These are Jewish believers he's talking to, and they got a problem. They're using divinely appointed rituals by divinely, divinely appointed priests in a divinely appointed place, the temple. This was written while the temple was still standing. It was that strange interval at Paul's last, last imprisonment, apparently, and the, fall, and the fall of Jerusalem 70 AD. So we can zero it in there. But he, the method, the author's method, is to show that Christ is superior To the three primary pillars of Judaism. Angels, Moses, and and the Levitical priesthood. Those aren't the only ones, but they're the big ones. And he's going to deviate from the logic of his argument, apparently, to include five warnings. And we'll learn a lot by studying those five warnings. They're written to believers. They do not represent any chance of loss to the past aspect of salvation justification They're already justified, that can't be changed. So they have eternal security. The warnings admonish the believers to press on and obtain all that God has promised to the faithful overcomer. That's what it's about. It's about rewards, as we might say. The warnings represent very real possibility of the loss of privilege or rewards offered to the believer which will be revealed at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the issue. That's not a little technicality. That's not a footnote. That is our primary occupation. You and I here today. I'm assuming you've accepted Christ. You're a believer here. If not see me afterwards. We'll fix that. Try to. No, I'm assuming you're. How many are saved by Jesus Christ? Praise God. How many of you are in the full time ministry here? I'm going to see a show of hands. Let me ask that question again. How many of you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ? Okay. How many of you are in the full time ministry, whether you know it or not? All right. Why? You say you're saved, what have you done with it? That's what your king is going to ask you, in effect. What have you done with it? What's he called you to do? Not necessarily be a pastor. There are lots of ministries. You get the great discovery in life to find out what God has called you to. And your gift that you're... Anyway, we'll get on with that. Five warnings. One's Hebrews chapter 2, first five verses. Hebrews 3 through 4. Hebrews 6, that's the big one. That has 16 different interpretations of Hebrews 6. We'll focus on the three main ones. And I think when you're through, you'll be very comfortable of understanding it before we're through. But we'll do that by getting there carefully. Hebrews 10, Hebrews 12, these are the five warnings that we're going to deal with as we go through this tour de force in Christology. All five warnings are a unit. They go together and complement each other. Each one builds upon the previous one. Each one intensifies until the fifth one, which is a capstone. And the writer relies heavily all the way through on Israel's Exodus as an example, a type. Remember Romans 15:4. Whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning, so that we, through the patient and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Whatsoever things are written. The book of Numbers is a guidebook for us, in in part, because we want to understand how Israel blew it. Over a million were saved out of Egypt, and only two inherited. What's the lesson there? We better pay attention. And uh, the redeemed people failed to heed God's instruction and was judged for disobedience. So why? Because God in his love and mercy saw fit to move the author of Hebrews to warn his readers. And by the way, that's us. God's purpose here is to warn us of what we might miss out on. <laughs> My wife always kids me when I'm at the dinner table, the dog's watching me eat. And I often talk to the dog, boy, are you missing out? This is good stuff, you know. <laughs> anyway. Anyway the author loved the recipients enough to warn them of impending danger paul loved the jews he wished he'd been called to the jews he was called to the gentiles peter took the jews he took the gentiles that was the, the the division but every time he spoke to the hebrews there was a riot the romans had to arrest him to save his life so he wrote this letter he didn't put he didn't write apostolically he wrote quoting Their authorities, the Old Testament, at every step of the way. He doesn't sign it because that would just add prejudice against it. They knew who he was. You'll find that out as you read the letter. But um, that would prejudice it. And by the way, God wanted future readers also to understand the danger that accompanies apostasy. Apostasy doesn't have to be vigorous rejection of the faith. Apostasy can be indifference. If you've, been in sa- if you've been saved and regarded casually, that's a form of apostasy, believe it or not. The original recipients of the letter were Christians. Each warning will substantiate that fact. The correct interpretation of the entire book hangs on one question. Were the people addressed believers or unbelievers? Were they saved, unsaved, or half saved? Be facetious a little bit. That's the question you need to answer for yourself. And by the way, two dozen times, the writer includes himself in the warnings and admonitions. Uh Uh-oh. Paul includes himself. You'll find the word we in some very key places. And the question you have to answer yourself when you get to Hebrews 10, does God urge an unconverted half-saved professor to hold fast to his false profession? I don't think so. But that alone nails it for you. What's at stake here? You, you've, you've spent an evening here? What are these believers going to lose, forfeit, or suffer? What's at stake here? Not salvation. We could go through a whole annex here of John 10 and Romans 8, and you know, you know the passages. No, what, What's at issue here? are rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the issue. We don't talk much about that. Churches generally don't preach much about that. We cannot escape by applying this to other people. You can't escape this by assuming it really means somebody else. The burden of the epistle to Hebrews is not the rescuing of sinners from hell. That's not what it's about. It's about bringing the sons to glory, the completion of your sanctification. We're gonna see a composite portrait of Christ. Chapter one emphasizes the coming rule of Christ and that's a millennial thing. It begins and centers on the coming glory of Christ in the Old Testament scriptures. You're gonna find in this chapter alone there are seven quotations from the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament that became the believers Bible in those days even though they were Jewish.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on one 800 khouse one To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org.